0: If you recall, we have been uh, working through a series on our core values. We started out talking about who we were as followers of Jesus, the promises, the things that are true about us. We said that, that God is not hidden. He is a God that reveals himself to people. He is on a mission to make himself known, and he's inviting us to, to know him and to be a part of that mission. We said that, he was a, that, that we are adopted by the Father. We are part of the family of God. We are loyal to the Son. We, we pledge our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and that we are empowered by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives in us to give us godly character and supernatural gifts. And then we pivoted a little bit and we said, these are the things that we are, but there's also things that we are becoming because we've been rescued by Jesus. He is not content to leave us where we're at, but he's growing us to make us into the image of his, uh, into his own image, into the image of the Son. And so we said that we are becoming people who live in communion with God. We want to be people that are recognizing that God is present around us. We're becoming people who submit to Scripture humbly, that the Word of God is our ultimate authority, but it's also sometimes kind of confusing, and we want to hold it humbly and and with a teachable spirit. Last week, we said that we're becoming people who walk in honesty and authenticity, and we said that, that God is calling us to walk in the light because that's where He is, and our lives are to be marked by honesty and authenticity. And those are all things that, that maybe we, we struggle with. We don't know how to do it well and we, we falter because this is who we are becoming. Henry Nowen, I've, I've, I've quoted this every week, but he said, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. We are His people, but we are still becoming fully who He intends us to be. And so this week, we're going to take a look at what it means to be becoming people who steward with generosity. So just to to start this thought process, this core value is going to push really hard against everything that many of us believe to be true about the world. And for many of us, maybe we wouldn't articulate it that way, but as as I move forward this morning, you're going to feel uncomfortable because that's what God's word tends to do. Two words, stewarding and generosity. Stewarding is, is using resources that have been given to us by someone else. In this case, God, our resources, they don't belong to us. They're on loan, and then generosity is having a mindset of abundance instead of scarcity. And we're going to tease out what that looks like. So, so this morning, are we, are we talking about money? Well, yes, we are going to be talking about money. But but I want you to, to have a, a broader understanding of what stewardship and a broader understanding of generosity looks like because it's it's much bigger than that. So as we start in Psalm 50... I want to read verses 9 through 13. God says, I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? See, in the middle of this psalm and we're kind of we're kind of jumping in the middle it's it's larger than this but God is rebuking the people of Israel for thinking that they are doing something to manipulate him by giving to him that that God needs their sacrifices. And this is a very common thing. If if you've been with us last year when we were studying through the beginning part of Genesis, we talked about how there's there's all these other creation stories that are floating around the ancient Near East in Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. And one of them called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which maybe you read in high school or college, has this, this story of the flood. And it's similar in some ways to Noah's Flood and it's different in other ways, and, and there's a part in Genesis where, where Noah gets off the boat and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord, and it's and you've, you maybe you've read it, and it's just a, it's a it's a fairly normal, um, biblical story, but in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's a little bit different, and and Tremper Longman writes about it this way: he says Mesopotamian gods depended on human sacrifice as a form of nourishment. In a word, the gods are starved because of the destruction of humanity. So after the altar fires are lit, the epic of Gilgamesh says, the gods smelled the savor. The gods smelled the sweet savor. The gods crowded around the sacrificer like flies. And so Gilgamesh paints this very different story of the way the gods work is that they are starving because for whatever reason, they killed everyone and there was no one to sacrifice to them. And so the Noah character in this story comes off the boat and and creates a sacrifice and they all just rush to him because they're so famished and they're so dependent on him for their needs. But that's not the God we read about in scripture. In, In Psalm 50, God says, I don't, I don't need your stuff. I don't. I don't eat these things. But the funny thing is, is sometimes when we talk about giving in the church or in some other parachurch ministry, it gets communicated that way. Man, if if you guys don't give today, this ministry is going to go under. God, God needs it. He's. It's not going to survive without you. And you think, well, maybe it shouldn't. Then I don't know. See God, it says in this really kind of funny, sarcastic tone i don 't need you i don 't need you, and maybe that sounds harsh, but this is really freeing if we can internalize it. I remember um, a few times this has happened in our family life, but but it has been our desire to paint a bedroom and uh there's always a small child who wants to help paint the bedroom. And if you've ever painted with a small child, you know how this works. You give the child a paintbrush and a little bit of paint, and you say, OK, kiddo, here's your area. Go for it. And then they, you know, and they do it, and they're, again, there's big lines and everything. And, and the beautiful thing about that is, because I know I'm going to go over the whole room with a roller, whatever they do on that wall is fine. They're free to be themselves, to steward the resources that they've been given, the best that they know how, without any pressure to get it right. What becomes important in that situation is the fact that they're actually participating in the job with me. We're spending quality time together. But what if, what if for some reason I, I feel like my, my young daughter's Participation in this painting is integral to the quality of the job. And she gets down there and she's kind of spilling the paint, and it's, it's the, the brush strokes aren't even and it's, there's splotches. And I go, Come on, that's not right. Do a better job. How devastating is that to a young child, right? And God is saying, hey, you know what? I don't need you. I got this. And we talk about money, and, and think about it that way. But broaden, broaden your picture here. What are, what are your assets? What are the things that you offer to the world? I, I was in a men's group a, a couple years ago, and I challenged the four or five of us to take about an hour and sit down and think through these categories, physical, emotional, material, relational, spiritual skills, and write down all of the things that they possessed that were assets. In my own devotion the devotional exercise. I, I listed 171 things, and some maybe you think like that's a lot of things. But if you if you spend a little bit of time, you can make a pretty good list. I just want to share a couple with you to maybe get your the, your mind thinking about what you have. I have physical assets. Um, I'm six foot three, so I can get stuff out of high shelves. And you might think, well, that's not a very important asset. Well, it is if you're a short person, isn't it? (laughs) But see, I'm also also very thin, so I can crawl into tight spaces. Who do you think gets called when there's maintenance to do in the crawl space of your house? I get called. (laughs) I have others that I won't share with you, but I have emotional assets. I tend to be a pretty calm person. People tell me I'm a good listener. I have material assets. I I have a guitar. Um, I I have a chop saw. I've got a snowblower, some video cameras. Relational assets. I know movie producers and computer programmers and artists and pastors and wise counselors. Spiritual assets. I have the gift of teaching, and I think I have the gift of administration as well. I have some skills. I can can wire electrical circuits. I can uh, set up an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, I can design motion graphics. I grill steak pretty well. And and these are, this is, the intention is not to like brag about how great I am because these are all like normal everyday things, right? Because you all have very similar individual gifts and abilities and talents and things about who you are and what you can do that have been given to you by God. And all of these things that you have, all of these things that I have, I'm called to steward. They don't ultimately belong to me. They're all gifts. And so what do you think that you have? What are some some assets that you've been given by God? And, And maybe some of you more pessimistic people would say, well, I don't really have anything. I can't do anything cool. Yeah, you do. Yes, you can. You've been given lots of things to steward. But when you recognize all of the things that you've been given by God, and then you start to think that I have to use them all correctly, or the whole mission of God is going to fall apart, that's when things get really stressful. Because the reality is, we're all in here with paintbrushes, just kind of going for it. And God's watching and saying, wow, thank you for helping. Thank you, God. It's so precious. See, all this stuff is a gift, and God doesn't need it back. His kingdom is not dependent on you. And we get this wrong in a couple of ways. Some of us think we're putting God into our debt by giving. He has to bless me because I tithe or because I sponsor a child or because I donate my old clothes or because I serve in the nursery. This, I'm, I'm building up this reservoir of debt against the Lord. But others of us are stressed out that, that we fail to be faithful. We recognize that we have been given something and we've screwed up. And so God is going to ruin our lives. And maybe he's going to ruin other people's lives because of our disobedience but those things, those aren't true. Look at verse 15 of Psalm 50. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Notice it's not connected to the sacrifices he talks about. He's sacrifice to me and then I will rescue you. That's not what he says. He just says, call on me. See, God wants to save. God wants, pursues us. God redeems us. God is not hidden. And whatever we do, he still wants to save. But then look at what he says in verse 8 of the psalm. He says, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. And then in verse 14, he says, offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. And maybe it feels a little bit like a mixed message, right? Like God says, I don't need your stuff. Keep giving me your stuff. What's he saying? Well, going back to the painting analogy, like I I could more efficiently paint the room by myself, but what do we get out of the opportunity of letting our small child paint with us? We get relationship. God wants relationship with his people, not because he needs us, not because he's like the Mesopotamian gods that are starving to death over sacrifices, but because he wants to participate in his mission with us. Giving is also an expression of trust. Last week, I read this quote by Jackie Hill Perry. If God is holy, then he can't sin. If he can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? So God says, continue to sacrifice, continue to give. I don't need your stuff, but just do it anyway because I want to participate with you relationally. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Do you trust that God has the things that you need even when you don't and that he's fully capable of giving them to you? Psalm 50 is one of many places where God calls his people to generosity and to trust him because he is the one that possesses all the resources we could possibly need. And this is the world that Jesus comes into. Jesus is God in the flesh, right? But he's also a Jewish man that grows up in the tradition of this community, and he's saturated in this idea of God's generosity. And I want us to turn to Luke chapter 12. It's on page 924, if you're using the Pew Bible. And Jesus tells a lot of stories like this, but... This is an important one. In in Luke 12, starting in verse 22, he says, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap, they don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith?" Don't strive after what you think you should eat or what you should drink and don't be anxious for the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things and your father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old and inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. Will be also. So Jesus here is talking about anxiety and and just a great question. Like, are you worried about your life? I think most of us would probably go, yeah, I think so. How much of that worry has to do with your resources? What if there's what if there's not enough money? What if I run out of time to finish this project? What if I never figure out what to do with my life? What if I marry the wrong person? What if I've already married the wrong person? Jesus says, stop, stop worrying. God cares for all these things, and so he'll care for you. And I, I kind of feel like we, we read this text or text like it where Jesus says, like, just don't be anxious, I've mentioned this before, but there's this really amazing skit by Bob Newhart from a long time ago where he's a psychiatrist. And this woman comes into his office, and she's got claustrophobia. And she says, whenever I go into an elevator or whatever, I, I just feel like the room is closing in around me. And and I, Bob Newhart talks about it for a little while. And then he stands up behind his desk, and he goes, stop it. That's his that's his advice for her. Like, well, I, I don't, you don't understand. I, I just, when I go into an elevator, I feel like just the room is cl- closing in on me. Stop it! It's not very good advice, is it? And it feels like Jesus is just kind of doing that. You know what? Just just don't be anxious. Just stop it. But when we see it that way, we miss what his actual advice is. His actual advice comes in verse 31. What does he say? He says, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourself that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't seem to understand the source of our anxiety, does he? So, no, no, Jesus, I didn't say I have too much stuff and I don't know what to do with it. I said I'm concerned that I don't have enough stuff. Yeah, yeah, sell your stuff. No, but you don't understand. I don't have enough. I know. You should get rid of some of it. Like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Has has Jesus lost his mind? Tim Mackey writes, Jesus conceives of the universe that he is living in as a place that should free us from anxiety. And the bummer thing is, is this is not the world that we live in. We live in a world where we're pretty sure that we don't have enough, and that there's not enough to go around. But Jesus doesn't think so. Jesus takes seriously the worldview that we learn about in the Old Testament, which is God owns everything, and he doesn't need anything. And he's good, and he wants to give to his people. So the question for us is, do we live in a world of abundance that is furnished lavishly by a God who loves us? Or do we live in a world of scarcity where we have to fight to protect what's ours? Scriptures, they they paint a picture of a world that is blessed with abundance because it is ruled by a loving creator that has both an endless supply of resources and a desire to meet our needs. Do we see the world that way? The Bible Project has this really great analogy of this kind of thinking where they just, they imagine um, the world as a party. Imagine you've been invited by, let's say, a rich doctor friend up to his home on, the, on a hill overlooking the lake, and it's just beautiful, and it's, it's well lit, and there's a swimming pool, and there's this beautiful furniture and a fireplace, and all of these hors d'oeuvres and snacks, and just everything is out there, and, and you go to this party, and it's amazing, but then a group of you get together and go like, "What if there's not enough hors d'oeuvres? What if they run out of those little smokies? I don't know. We should do something. What should we do? Let's let's go get them all, and then we can. I'll meet. You. We'll you go that way, and I'll go that way, and we'll get them, and then we'll we'll go back to the den. We'll hide them in the den, and then we'll stand out front. Somebody will have to stand guard to make sure that nobody gets the little smokies because." They're important. Like, that's so dumb, isn't it? Like, you would never go to a party and just assume, well, there's just not enough resource here. You would gladly enter into the environment and enjoy what had been given to you. But yet, we come into the world with that attitude. That there's not enough to go around. We have to take what's ours and hide it from others. And if somebody else doesn't get it, then that's their problem. They weren't fast enough. Do you guys remember when, like, we had to go hoard toilet paper a couple years ago? Like, what does that say about who we are? But see, Jesus is inviting us into a very different reality to see that the kingdom of God has broken into our world because Jesus is king and is ruling and reigning and his resources are abundant and endless. Look at verse 32. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father delights to give you the kingdom. He delights to give you the kingdom. Do you see God this way? That he's just so excited to give you what you need. This is the view of the world that Jesus is challenging us to internalize. How do we we cure our anxiety about time and and money and energy and things? We we start to give stuff away. We start to hold it loosely. And that seems so counterintuitive. But Jesus says, like, no, there's more where that came from. And the key to living outside of anxiety is generosity. So, so I've got a couple objections to this. Like, maybe, maybe you're, you're a Christian here this morning and you, you want to believe Jesus, but mm, your experience makes you doubt. What about, what about people who actually experience poverty? Like, most of us in this room are not poor on a global scale. Uh, 9.2% of the world, 689 million people, live on less than $2 a day. Now, since 1990, that number has dropped by over a billion. But still, that's a lot of people that have no resources. In the United States, about 10% of Americans, that's 34 million people, make less than $13,000 a year. That's the poverty line in the United States. And while that's orders of magnitude more than $2 a day, for a lifestyle that's normal in the United States, it's very little resource. So how can Jesus possibly say, if you're anxious about resources, you should give your resources away, when there are so many people, many of whom love and serve Jesus, that have nothing? That's a a good objection. But then the question I would ask is, is poverty a God problem or a human problem? Does poverty exist because of God's creation or because of the fall of people? See, the reality is is that there's more than enough in this world for everyone to have what they need. The United Nations estimates that it would take about $175 billion a year for 20 years to completely eliminate extreme poverty around the world. And that's less than 1% of the combined income of the richest countries in the world. So, So we have resource. God has given us what we need. And yet we are the people at the party that hoard it from one another. What about an example closer to home? What about um, what about the housing market in Coeur d'Alene? Has anybody been following real estate lately? The median home in Coeur d'Alene is over $500,000. 24% of households in Kootenai County can afford to buy a home here. That means 76% of people who live here could not buy a house here if they didn't already own one. and that's a big complicated problem and and governments and foundations and nonprofits are all trying to figure out how to fix it but many times what i hear is the solution to the problem is you have to leave we're full go back where you came from maybe you've seen the bumper stickers with the state of idaho and that says full because Some of us, we came here from California in the 90s, and we just barely squeezed in. But those of you that are coming from California today, no more room. You have to leave. It betrays an attitude of scarcity, doesn't it? That there's just not enough. And that brings us back to Jesus. Earlier in Luke, Jesus demonstrates that he's not unaware of this, right? He says in Luke 9, As they were were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus told him. Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is homeless. Jesus is poor. Jesus is aware of the scarcity of life in a broken world. But the place where his heart is centered And the place that he calls us to live is in a world marked by the abundance of a loving father. See, our tendency is to let the world out there shape our understanding of God's generosity rather than God himself through the scriptures. We come to believe that that people moving here from other places is a bad thing, that we better all buy the toilet paper before somebody else takes it from us. And again, these are complicated issues, but at the root, they display an attitude that says that God is not going to take care of our needs. We have to step into it and take care of it ourselves. There's a pretty important prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. There's a line that says, give us today our daily bread. And the, and the glorious thing about being an American for the most part is, is we, don't, we don't really have to pray that prayer, do we? maybe some of us have in the past or maybe currently a few of us are experiencing hunger but most of us in this place are like give us this month our daily you know costco runs or like it's like there's such a different understanding of resource most of us are too wealthy to really need to trust god on a daily basis and it's not until a starter home costs a half a million dollars that we go like oh wait maybe i need to lean into what God's promises of abundance really are? Do we really believe that God will come through when things don't seem like they can possibly work out? There's a man named George Mueller. Maybe you've heard of him and his story. He ran a series of orphanages many years ago. And one of the things that he decided to do is he just wasn't going to ask anybody or share his needs with anybody. And there's nothing wrong with sharing needs we we heard Jeff do it this morning but it was just a personal like almost challenge he made with god that he wasn't going to do that and he f- fed and housed and loved on over 10,000 orphanages in his li- or orphans in his life and every single day was an opportunity to pray for food and if you read his autobiography it's like diary entry after diary entry after diary entry of like There's no food left and it's breakfast time and the kids are all gathered around the table and I don't know what's going to happen. And then somebody rings the doorbell and they've brought groceries. Or the, the postman comes by with a letter and it's got just enough money to go to the market and feed the kids. And it's those moments when we're forced to look at what we believe to be the scarcity in the world. There's not enough. How are we going to survive? How are we going to make ends meet? I can't see a way forward that God wants us to go. Actually, the whole world works in the exact opposite way because I am a loving, generous father, and I want to care for your needs. So a question for us is, is do we live our lives primarily oriented around protecting ourselves against the curse that we see in the world or being receptive to the blessing that God has promised? And that's a heart question. What takes priority in that moment where like, I don't know what we're going to do. What bubbles up from inside you? There's not enough. Better take it into my own hands. Or God. God. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You got this. This is where things start to get practical. It's amazing how many of the spiritual disciplines that we're called to practice have to do with generosity. The first one, maybe the most obvious one, is, is giving, right? We're, we're called to be generous givers when it comes to money. And generosity is not about giving away a lot of money. It's about living with the expectation that when we give away our money, God will still meet our needs. Remember what Jesus says there: like, don't don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. So, so these are people that are worried about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear, and he says, just sell your stuff. Well, I don't I don't have enough to do that. Yeah, but do it anyway, and and see what happens. This is why I am a big I'm a big fan of the. Idea of percentage giving, and I know we we are not under the law. We're not under the Old Testament paradigm, and the the Jewish people in the Old Testament they gave a tenth of their resources, and then it actually probably ended up being more like twenty five percent of their resources when you added in all the other things they did. And in the New Testament, we're told just God loves a cheerful giver. But my family has has always just decided like this this percentage of my income, this percentage of our family's income is going to go to the mission of God. And I, it's to the point where we don't really even think about it. And, and, and maybe we could, you know, be a little bit more worshipful about it. I think that's probably a good critique. But we don't, we don't try to wrestle down, like, how, are we going to give to the Lord this month? Are we going to, how much are we going to give? We just, we've just decided, this is, this is what we're going to give away. And as our income has gone up and gone down, we've just said, this is the percentage of it that we're going to give away. And if the church, and this, this is what I think, if the church is the primary vehicle that God uses to move forward His mission in the world, and you're part of a church community that is working by the grace of God to be faithful to Jesus in word and in action, then, then funding the work of the ministry of the church is the primary way that we're called to implement financial giving. And I say that as someone who directly benefits from the giving of this church. And I recognize that maybe there's a conflict of interest there. That's why a lot of pastors don't want to talk about giving because it feels uncomfortable. Um, And I'm so grateful that our family can be supported and allowed to do the work of, of equipping the saints in Revelation Church by the generosity of our congregation. But more than that, we get to use these resources for the mission of God in a variety of ways. Not because God needs our stuff. If, if all of the money in Revelation Church dried up, you know, God's fine. <laughs> he's he's going to get his mission done just fine. But he wants our hearts. He wants us to be people that freely give to make us independent from money. And what that looks like for you, well, see, that's between you and God, because how dependent you are on your financial resources is different for every person. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And so while there are definitely times when we are faced, uh, Joanna and I personally have been in situations where we had no income for like a year. We, we worked um, with, with no income. And so we, we, couldn't, we couldn't give. But for some of us, there's, we have a lot of income. We have a lot of resource. And this idea that Lewis brings out that, that there's no like, set idea about what giving should look like is really important for those of us who have more money. Scripture is suspicious of the way that resources corrupt people. Resources aren't bad, but they can be dangerous. If I were to hypothetically, super hypothetically, bring in a million dollars this year, I could write a check for $10,000 to a local charity, and they will throw me a party, and they will have a photo op with one of those big, giant checks, and I would have my picture in the paper and my name engraved on a plaque. But if you make $40,000 this year and give $4,000 to the church, it's honestly gonna have a pretty small effect on the overall budget. But the reality is you will experience trusting God in a much deeper way in that area of life than I will with my million dollars and my $10,000 donation. Because see, God doesn't care about how much money we earn or spend or give. He wants you to trust him. And so the question I have to ask is, what amount of financial giving puts me in that place where I trust him? And for you, that's a, that's a question that the Holy Spirit needs to answer for you. And giving, of course, is the obvious spiritual discipline, but there's several others. What about fasting? I'm going I'm to give away this meal, and I'm going to trust that there will be another one in the future when I need it. Right? That's what fasting is. Do you practice fasting? Most of us, I, I I would guess, don't practice fasting. See, Jesus in Matthew 6, he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. And so he expects us to be people who experience fasting. It's a great time of the year. Lent starts on March 2nd. And the season of Lent preceding Easter is traditionally a time of fasting for the church. You... you Typically, pick something that you are um, that you kind of center your life around—a specific food or an activity or, or something that is important to you—and you set it aside for six weeks before Easter. See, fasting during Lent teaches us that we don't need to get the things we think to need, we need in order to experience the abundance of God. It unlocks creative ways of experiencing God's abundance that we wouldn't notice. Without eliminating things from our lives. A lot of times when the, you talk about fasting in the church, you talk about how, um, you know, I'm gonna give up chocolate. And so when I when I have a feel, like a craving for chocolate, that's gonna be my cue to pray. And that's fine, but I don't think fasting is intended to leverage your anxiety for spiritual things. I think Rather, it's intended to rid you of your anxiety. See, God doesn't need your chocolate. And he wants you to understand that you don't need it either. And this is why so often, especially for those of us that have fasted from Lent, you know this, you decide, I'm going to get rid of Facebook for six weeks, or I'm going to cut this thing out of my diet, or I'm going to stop doing this mildly unhealthy activity And afterwards, you go, you know what? I don't think I'm going to put that back into my life. I realized I don't need it. I realized it held a place in my life that had a power that was unhealthy. And that's what fasting does, is it it helps us find those things to give them away and realize, oh, we don't need them in the first place. Another discipline is called simplicity. Right before the story about anxiety, Jesus tells this parable. He says, a rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This parable goes directly against a significant American value. Bigger, better, more. How will I measure my success without getting a bigger house or a nicer car or a second jet ski? And simplicity says, how can I make do with less? How can I remove things? give things away, be generous with what I have. And there's just like giving and fasting, there's no definite line for what simplicity looks like. It's a matter of the heart. But it has to be pursued intentionally. You have to make the decision to live with less. My family is on a constant journey of experimenting with simplicity. We A couple years ago, we sold our 2,600 square foot house and we built a 900 square foot house. And it's been challenging. It's been really difficult to figure out where to put all that stuff. We ended up having to get rid of it. We can't we, we don't have we don't have space in our lives for 2600 square feet worth of stuff anymore. And we've also we've also had to recognize that like we have to live in proximity to one another now. Like there's nowhere to go when we're fighting. It's outside cold. And we actually have kind of figured out we need to dial back that a little bit. We have a, an outbuilding on our in our yard that we're going to remodel into kind of a, a, a library space so that at least one of us can go out and be alone every once in a while because we found we needed that. But we're experimenting with simplicity. Another thing I started doing this year is, is limiting my wardrobe. 90% of the time, if you see me, I will be wearing a pair of pants, a t-shirt, and this hoodie. I have two of these hoodies. They're the same. And, and that's not, I mean, some of you are like, I'm not doing that. That's, that's no. That's, that's fine. But what it does for me is it takes that, that whole process of what, what do I wear and how am I going to present myself and, and all of the things that go along with the decision-making process of getting dressed in the morning, and it just takes it off the table. I don't, I don't need that. I don't need to worry about that. How do you think about your stuff? Gretchen Saffels writes, our grip should be loose on any material possession we have and tight on the truths of God that amount to an eternal wealth. Many years ago, I heard Pastor Andy Stanley say this. He said, never own something that you will not lend to someone else. Never own something that you are unwilling to let someone borrow. If you have a possession, if you have a thing, and somebody says, hey, can I borrow your motorcycle? Can I borrow your motorhome? Can I borrow your fishing pole? I don't know, whatever. No, you can't. It's mine. It's my special, my precious. You might break it. It's a red flag. Something's going on in your heart. I have a guitar that... Uh, I used to uh, manage a recording studio and I had this guitar in uh, the studio and this guy came in to record and he was, he was like pulling like ones out of his pocket to pay for an hour of recording time. And I just, I got a bad feeling about the whole thing, but, but I was, uh, I was was working with him anyway. And uh, he was a hip hop artist as well, which, you know, they're a mess. Um, (laughs) And uh, that was a joke. Um, The... He goes, ah, man, I'd really like to have a guitar on this track. And I said, do you have a guitar? And he goes, no, can I use yours? And I wanted to be like, no, you can't use mine because you're weird and you might break it. But I didn't say that. I let him do it, and, and he played the track. And then he dropped it and shattered the soundboard. Just giant crack up the middle. Completely trashed the guitar. And I regretted my decision to be generous. But I held on to that guitar for a number of years because I liked it, even though it didn't sound very good anymore. And then I, I met a friend who who saw that guitar and was like, hey, you know what? I know how to fix that. Could I fix that for you? And I said, Well, yeah, maybe. What what are you gonna charge me? Oh, I won't charge you anything. I'll just give it away. It's it's a gift. See, God knows what we need. He has all of the resources we could possibly want. And He invites us to trust Him with them, even when it doesn't make any sense. One more spiritual discipline before we close Sabbath, having a day of rest, time with God, family, doing things that are life giving, not part of the hustle. Right? It used to be my weekends were like my other work days. I would be off work, but then I would jump into house projects. And I would build this and make that and work on that and design that. And I would just, from sunup to sundown, my weekends were filled with stuff to do. And a while ago, our family, we started taking Sabbath seriously and not legalistically and not because it's the, you know, we're under the law and we have to, but because God says, hey, you guys should rest. And so we've said, okay, on Friday night, we're going to have a special meal. And then all of Saturday, we're just going to, we're going to rest. I'm not going to work on the house. I'm not going to do projects. I'm not going to get extra stuff done. We're going to play board games and go for walks and hang out with one another and worship the Lord. And you guys, it's been really, really hard. It's been really, really hard to get to the end of day on, fr- the fr- on Friday and go like, I'm out of time. Because I've decided I'm going to give my time away to the Lord because not that he needs the time, but because he needs me to trust him. He needs me to trust that even though I've set aside this day to not be productive, everything that needs to get done is going to get done anyway, because there's enough time in his universe for everything to get accomplished. And intentionally being less efficient with your time is an anti-American value, but it is an act of placing your time at the feet of Jesus and saying that you believe that there will still be enough. This happens in small doses as well. The other day, I was in my office and I was praying. uh, And before I started praying, I um, started transferring some files to a hard drive. And for a variety of reasons, I had to do it in a couple different batches. And it was it was like a half an hour between batches. And I was I was going through kind of my normal prayer rhythm, and I was about halfway through, and this batch of files finished. Ding, And I immediately thought, oh, I need to, I'm going to set aside my time with the Lord mid-prayer and just get that second batch of files going, you know, because might as well be efficient with my time. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, you don't need to do that. You, sh- you should stay here with me. That'll take care of itself. I don't, I don't need you to be efficient right now. I, ne- I need you to be with me. Because see, I have this idea that if I'm not multitasking, I'm somehow wasting time. And in that moment, God was just like, no, you just need to be with me. And that other stuff, that'll take care of itself later. There's this story in 2 Kings 17 where the prophet Elijah goes to this widow and uh, there's a famine going on. And he goes, hey, I would love it if you would make me some bread. And the widow says, I only have enough flour for one piece of bread that I'm going to split between myself and my son, and then we're going to die because we are out of food. And Elijah goes, no, it'll be fine. Just make me the bread first, and I'll eat mine, and then you'll be fine. Wasn't that crazy? (laughs) The audacity of this guy to be like, no, you're going to be fine. Just let me eat first. But he's the prophet of God, and this woman, for some reason, trusts him. And so she makes this loaf of bread and gives it to Elijah and he eats. And then for like years, the flour for the bread doesn't run out. Because see, that's not how the world works, but that's how the kingdom of God works. And so as we close this morning, through Christ, because he lives in us, because he's redeemed us, we are becoming people who are learning to steward with generosity. Because everything that we have, all of our physical assets and relational assets and emotional assets and financial assets and the the things we possess, all of those things are gifts from God. And he speaks loudly from his word that he doesn't need our stuff because he has everything he could possibly need and he can give to us. It requires us to begin to see the world in a totally different way. God is generous. His resources are abundant. And he doesn't need anything from us. And Jesus says the secret to getting there is intentionally giving stuff away. Giving away money, giving away time, giving away energy, giving away talent that making that your practice is going to retune your heart away from the mindset of the world around us and toward the reality that your Father delights to give you the kingdom.